Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are back with the Fat Joy podcast, and I am back with Reagan Chastain, who has joined me again. Thank you, Reagan, and welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I'm super excited to talk about Yay. this. Um, so I'm not going to have Reagan reintroduce herself um, because if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should stop. Go back and listen to that. We talked about Weight Watchers and Noom and quote unquote weight loss research. Hint, it's all bullshit. Find out why in the last episode. And this episode, we're going to dive into weight loss surgeries. I, oh, the bariatric surgery, the cutting of our bodies. This is, this is so interesting to me. And I really struggle with this topic. It feels horrifying. I looked into it. Um, maybe, when was it? Maybe 10 years ago. And I started reading about what was involved with all these various surgeries. Like I, cause I was like, no, I want to know what's going to happen to my body. And I remember like, I was nauseous, sweaty, like just reading the descriptions of what happens. And I just knew there was something in me with that was like, no, this is not for you. And I'm so grateful to whatever that was. Cause I now know many people who've had weight loss surgery and have regained all the weight, have had to go back or have not had to, have chosen to go back and do it again and the the side effects, the symptoms. And yet none of that is actually shared. Um, so I'm so fascinated by this. I'm excited to talk to you about it, Reagan. Um, you did a really great newsletter. Um, it was a series, I think, of newsletters on different types of weight loss surgeries and where do we start with this? It's such a big can of worms. Where do we start? I think we have to start with what it is. Yeah. So what weight loss surgery does is it takes a healthy stomach and digestive system and it surgically creates a disease state to force behaviors that mimic eating disorders. That's what it is. That's not an arguable, debatable stance. That's exactly what weight loss surgery does. It creates um, forced restriction and it creates malabsorption depending on which surgeries you have. So and or, but that's what the surgery does. It takes healthy organs and, and systems and it creates disease. I just, I don't even, again, why am I so naive? But I just, it boggles my mind that this has ever been allowed to happen. I think it's a good, a good being used relatively here, example of how the healthcare system has become so steeped in weight stigma that they will do literally anything but try to support the health of people in fat bodies. So the only way that these surgeries are justifiable is based on tenets that essentially fat people should risk their lives and quality of life in an attempt to become thin and often to quote-unquote treat or prevent health issues that thin people get and from whom those risks are not asked. Yeah, this is the thing, right? That thin people get all the same health challenges that fat people get. There is nothing uniquely, I don't, how would I say this? There's nothing that a fat person gets that a thin person would not also get. And yet, this is this is where you're saying, this is where weight stigma comes in. So we'd rather cut our bodies open and do all kinds of stuff to them in order to achieve thinness. Yeah. It also takes advantage of, so what the diet industry, again, did brilliantly, um, and if you haven't listened to the last episode, there's a lot of 
the strings of this here, but they essentially created this wealth of really crappy research that links being higher weight to health issues, right? So they, it doesn't control for things like weight stigma or weight cycling or healthcare inequalities. It doesn't properly, it just like anytime they can say higher weight people have this health issue more ignoring testing rate differences, ignoring everything. So they've got this mountain. And what they know is that approval for these surgeries and pharmaceuticals and things, they're based on a risk-benefit analysis. So every drug has side effects. So it's not, they're not approving drugs because they don't have side effects. They're approving drugs because the side effect, um, the side effects are less bad than the effect of the drug. Right. So it's worth the risk, essentially. And so by creating this mountain of research that they claim shows the quote unquote risk of being fat, they are able to say, well, sure, this risks people's life and quality of life. But like, look how terrible it is to be fat. And then they also leverage weight stigma. Right. Well, fat people are treated terribly. And that's real. People's lives would be materially better if they were thinner because of weight stigma. And so what this says is, well, let's try to you know, risk this person's life and quality of life to appease their oppressors. And I don't blame people who try any means that they can to escape oppression, especially people at the highest weights, especially multiply marginalized people. I'm not, regardless, I'm not blaming people. Um, But I'm saying that to consider that an ethical medical intervention and to justify it based on weight stigma medically, that is a position that I don't think is ethically defensible. No, no. I'm so interested, and you write about this quite a bit, um, how this research does not control for weight stigma. What would it look like to control for weight stigma? What does that actually mean? And how would the research be done differently if it did that? Yeah. So the thing about research is there's the, the main tenet of research is that correlation does not imply causation, which is to say that just because two things happen at the same time, you cannot say one causes the other. And this is trickier in medical research because we use correlation all the time because the body is complicated, because research is expensive. Um, But in order to responsibly do that, you are still obligated to explore what are called confounding variables. So basically, we've got this relationship where higher weight people have a higher incidence of this health issue. Okay, we can't say, oh, because they're higher weight, they have a higher incidence. We have to first look at what else could affect this relationship. And so weight stigma, weight cycling, and healthcare inequalities are all correlated with many of the same things to which being higher weight is correlated. Okay. In separate research, that has been correlated, verified, solid. Okay. Yeah. So then where is the gap occurring? Why are people not taking that into account? I think, first of all, a lot of the research is funded by the weight loss industry, which has no interest in finding that, in fact, it's not higher weight that causes higher rates of incidence, but in fact, exposure to weight cycling and weight stigma and healthcare inequalities. Um, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that the idea that weight causes health issues, even though that's not proven, is generally accepted. So you'll see in peer-reviewed studies, the first statement will be this broad, like, you know, quote unquote, obesity causes all these health issues and all this money. And that's not cited or questioned. And that should not pass peer review, right? That's first week of research method stuff. You can't just say things. But because we have this cultural belief that everybody knows is the same thing as, you know, ethical best practice research, it just passes. And so people don't question it. And that's a huge issue as well. And then there, you know, researchers are steeped in this uh, paradigm. So even if they're well-intentioned, not trying to do the weight loss industry's bidding, they may not be thinking about these things. And these things are hard to control for, and you only get so much money to do research. So, but even if they aren't like really controlling for the, they, this should be part of their discussion. Of course, other research shows that these experiences that higher weight people have are also correlated with these same health issues. So it could be the experiences and not their body size 
Like just a, a statement even like that is what you're saying. Yeah. Research of people who are not exposed to weight stigma find that their rates are not as high, for example. Like there's some health issues that are like that. So what you're responsible for is delving into it, even if you aren't able to control for it, even if you know, you're know you just doing observational research and what you're observing didn't control for it, you're still obligated to discuss it. And these things are neither controlled for nor discussed in almost any of the weight science research that tries to link being higher weight to health issues. Right. What about the research, we're going on a slight research tangent, but this is so interesting. What about the research that is not linked with proving higher weight equals bad? Does it, when you do research that controls for this, like, does it, what does it show? So weight loss that actually controls for behaviors, for example, and that's where the body of the research is. And this is a tricky thing to talk about because there's morality attached to these behaviors. Typically, they're only looking at food and movement. So there's all kinds of issues with that piece of it. But when we look into those behaviors, what we find is behaviors are a better predictor of current and future health than is weight or weight loss attempts. Got it. When you say behaviors, you mean things like what? So for example, um, Gazer and Angotti and Wei et al. looked at uh, participation in fitness and physical activity. Matheson et al. looked at um, smoking status, um, vegetable consumption, um, movement, and alcoholic beverage consumption. So it looked at those as like four healthy habits, and then you can kind of stride based on how many of the habits were people participating in and what was there. I think they looked at... Um, uh, health hazard ratio as opposed to relative risk of all-cause mortality, but the, those are typically the two scales that are used. Um, but yeah, so, and again, that's confusing and, and it's morally problematic because they're not looking at things like social connection or mm-hmm. what about higher weight people who aren't experiencing weight stigma because it's almost impossible to find higher weight people who aren't experiencing weight stigma. Right. Munich out of Columbia found that um, cis women who feel they are too heavy suffered more physical and mental illness than cis women who um, felt they were their size was fine regardless of what they weighed, for example. Yeah. And then there's also the issue with with every study I just talked about in almost all studies, no trans and non-binary representation, underrepresentation of people of color. And so even what we're getting is this like group of privileged people, group of people not experiencing, you know, white supremacy, for example, who have white privilege. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of other pieces of that too. Is there anyone doing really good research, Reagan, (laughs) that does look at a lot of those variables that are important to look at? Oh, there are definitely people doing incredible research. And a couple of researchers are coming to mind right now, but I don't want to start listing because I will leave people out. But I'll be happy to give some examples of that um, for after because I just don't want to leave out incredible people because I'm in the moment not thinking of their names. Yeah, I'll um, I'll add that to the show notes for this because I, yeah, it'd be great to know who is. There yeah. is really, there's research out there that is looking in a systemic an anti-oppression way. Yeah. And it's hard to get funded. What's important to know, especially in the States, so much of the money is earmarked only for quote unquote anti-obesity or quote unquote obesity prevention efforts. So if you're not doing anti-fat research, that money is not available to you. So it's getting funded is difficult in any guise, but especially when we've like, we being the powers that be who are determining funding have decided that only research that seeks to eradicate fat people and prevent more from existing is worth funding, then that makes it so much harder for these folks to get money to to do the research that needs to be done. Yeah. Oh, it's so gross. It's just gross. Super gross. Okay. So now we're going into the grossest of the grossest, weight loss surgeries. So (laughs) we have a sense of like what they are putting us into a disease state. Um, So then what what happens here? I I think I'm really curious about how insurance companies come into play with this, how like even before the surgery, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happens to get people to the point where they're willing to do this. Can you speak to some of those factors? Absolutely. So I want to talk about this Allergan study and it was many years ago, but this headline came out, um, quote unquote, obesity costs the workplace $73 billion a year. And just from a research nerd perspective, I was like, man, that's a hard number to get. Like, so I paid my 30 bucks and I got the study and I read it. 
And it was ridiculous. So what they got was a seven-day study where they asked people, how much work did you miss because of your health issues? And how much productivity did you lose? And it was like on a scale of one to 10 where the scale was not defined. It wasn't even like a standard Likert scale or Likert scale, as I remember. Um, But yeah, so, and then they extrapolated. They assumed that fat people's health issues were caused by their fat and thin people's were caused by something else. And they extrapolated from seven days to a year and they came up with $73 billion worth. So yeah. So first of all, I was like, what is happening? Like, why did I bother working hard in these research methods classes if I could have just worked for Allergan with like the misunderstandings of research I had when I was seven? Uh, but and so but what they did, it turns out that that 73, uh, you know, million, billion, whatever dollars a year was a little more than what it would cost to give all the estimated fat people lap band surgery. No. And Allergan makes the lap band. No. So they used it to go and lot to ask um, businesses to lobby for insurance coverage of their lap band. We are conspiracy theorists. It's true. It's not conspiracy. Oh Some my God. Foil hat conspiracy theory, right? That um, they, so insurance coverage is the holy grail for these people. Yeah. Right, because people can't pay 18 grand out of pocket for these surgeries. And so they can get many, 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 many more people in if they can get insurance coverage. So insurance coverage is the first holy grail. The second holy grail for them is expanding the number of people who are allowed to have the surgery. (laughs) Progressively younger and progressively less fat people. So these are the two things. And this is both weight loss surgery and pharmaceuticals. I was going to say, we govy's going to come up here, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I feel like it is. Um, we, we can do a third part uh, about Rigovi and Terzepatide. But, um, but yeah, so they are, so they, so yeah, they use this study to lobby companies to lobby the government for insurance coverage for these surgeries. Um, so this is like the kind of stuff that happens. Uh, because people have to pay for the surgeries. And we as the general public are really unaware of this, typically. Right. We wouldn't know. There's so much that goes behind the scenes, right? So there's all of that piece of it. And then there's just this belief like, you know, this. once you say it's ethical to risk this person's life to make them thin, then that's fair game. So you say, oh, we believe that thinner people have better surgical outcomes, for example, of knee surgery. Now, there's research that suggests that that's not true. And even if it was, that's probably because all of the research and tools and best practices and training is based on thin people. Like That's probably a solvable problem. And even if fat people need more resources, that should be okay, right? The idea that if fat people can't have the same outcomes as thin people, then they don't deserve care at all is not ethically justifiable. But what happens is they say, oh, well, it's too dangerous to have knee surgery at your size. So we're going to refer you to weight loss surgery, right? Which is patently ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Considering especially that with weight loss surgery, there's almost no data past 10 years. Oh, really? Almost none. They have essentially no idea what's going to happen to you after 10 years. And they've purposefully not done long-term research? I, you know, I don't know if I can say for sure it's purposefully, but I know that most of the research comes from the industry and they have no interest in it. I also know someone who does this kind of research who is, you know, we've had conversations who said that um, they want to do long-term research and that the NIH won't take their call. Really? The NIH? Has no interest in funding long-term. It's expensive. National Institute of Health. Institute of Health, yeah, here in the States. And it is incredibly expensive to do this research, but that doesn't make it okay to mutilate people's bodies, create disease, and then be like, whatevs, which is exactly what is happening. And what bothers me is, first of all, I don't think these surgeries meet the requirements of ethical evidence-based medicine. I think they are at best experimental, and I, I don't think they're justifiable. But even if they are, what we don't have here in any way is an informed consent process. Mm-mm. That's the these, other piece. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like these surgeries are straight up marketed like LuLaRoe leggings to people. <laughs> yes, they are. That's such a good analogy. Right. Like if you go to a, a website of a hospital, for example, that offers these surgeries, if you go to their gallbladder surgery page, they're talking about gallbladder surgery. They're not, it's not like a video, you should get gallbladder surgery and look at, you know, here's, we have a seminar about it. That's like a, you know, Amway rally. That's not how they're (laughs) talking about their surgeries. But if you go to the weight loss surgery page, all you're hearing from are people who have a good outcome. It's lifestyle. It's like lifestyle marketing. A hundred percent. And it's so 
I want to kind of talk about outcome groups, if that's okay, because I think it's important to understand. So basically, there are three outcome groups for the surgery. Group one is happy with the result. And often they couch their happiness in the fact that they're not experiencing weight stigma anymore or they're experiencing it to a lower level. Um, but regardless, some of them have had what I would consider horrific lifelong side effects, but they're still happy. That group does exist. A lot of this group are in years one through three. Yes. What is known as kind of the honeymoon period. Yeah. Right. So, so that's group one. They're happy. These are the people who are talking at the seminars, who are on the brochures, who are in the videos that are used to market these surgeries. Group two are miserable. They often say they'd give anything to take back the surgery. They have horrible lifelong side effects. They often have regained all of their weight or some of their weight or most of their weight. They often have health issues they didn't have before. Um, and often people move from the happy group into the miserable group after that year, two, three honeymoon period situation. Interesting. Yes. These people are not asked to be in the brochures or the seminars or the marketing videos. Group three are no longer alive. Yeah. They may have passed away on the table. They may have passed away from... Uh, effects after the surgery, either short-term or long-term, but they are no longer alive. They obviously can't tell their stories and their friends and family members are certainly not asked to be at the symposiums and talk in the brochures and do videos about the situation. And these are the people who I hear from. It's so heartbreaking. They'll say, my mom just wanted to fit on the roller coaster with us to ride, you know, the Harry Potter ride. A ride, which by the way, could have a much larger restraint system, but that's a whole other topic, right? Um, and instead, she died. She died, right? And people are told, oh, you won't live long enough to see your grandkids, which is not what the research says, mm -hmm. right? Often these surgeries are based on fear-mongering that does not match up with the research on longevity for fat people, which is another whole issue, right? But they pass away. But when surgeons talk to people or doctors talk to people about having these surgeries, mm -hmm. there's no kind of shared decision-making informed consent process that even gives them a picture. And Deborah Gard, again, incredible uh, uh, um, advocate and research expert. I mean, she's mm -hmm. amazing in so many different ways and a therapist. Um, and talked about, she's the first person who said to me, you know, I'm not sure informed consent is even possible with these surgeries. <sighs> Mm -hmm. Right, Because we, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. So how can you get informed consent? And then, you know, you are only hearing from people who have had a positive outcome. You've got a surgeon who's telling you that you'll die before you're 30 if you don't have it, which again, deeply untrue. Um, and it's all based on also, we're going to move you out of a stigmatized group, right, surgically. And I, as a queer person who came out in Texas in the mid-90s, um, this is not a perfect comparison by any means, and I would never directly compare to oppressions, but when I came out was the time in my life when so-called conversion therapy was uh, considered like kind of a reasonable thing. Yeah. Right? Like we'll, you know, it's, it's mentally and physically dangerous and it hardly ever works, but if it does, you'll be straight and no longer be subjected to homophobia. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I roundly rejected that. And again, tons of luck and privilege in my experience of doing that. And no, um, no blame to people who had different experiences or having different experiences. But I see sort of the same thing, right? Like when you're being told you should have the surgery because you'll be able to shop in different stores mm -hmm. because you'll, you know, you'll, your dating chances will be better. Yeah, you'll fit on the roller coaster, you'll fit in the restaurant. These things, if the surgery were to make someone thinner permanently, first of all, that's true. They would have an experience with less weight stigma. But I don't think you can surgically say at what cost. <sighs> and I reject for myself the idea that the solution to oppression is to is for oppressed people to risk their lives and quality of life to suit their oppressors. For myself, I reject that roundly, and I don't think it's a medically ethical position. No, it shouldn't. It should not be allowed. I remember talking to a doctor about weight loss surgery, and that yeah, that it was it'll be the best decision you've ever made. Don't even worry about it. Like that, mm -hmm. literally. And I, and then I did my research. And like I said, I started <laughs> throwing up in my mouth. I was like, oh no, this is not, yeah. this is not okay. Um, 
what are some of the side effects? What are the, can you say the things that the surgeon will not say? What does the research show happens with people, especially those group two? Yeah, there are many and varied side effects, multiple organ issues. You can have, um, it was some of the, and the surgeries are different. One of the things that they do, I just want to quick point this out, is they change the surgery a little bit. And they say, look, it's a new surgery. So none of that previous data is valid. And we don't have any future data, but like we think it's better. Um, so there's a lot of that going around. The medic, the drug companies do that too. We tweaked this slightly. Suddenly everything that was like banned by the FDA before no longer counts. Yeah. Yeah. Or our patent is, is still secure. Um, but yeah, so um, people have what's called dumping syndrome where they have extreme gastrointestinal distress. There are people who can't eat without vomiting. There are people who um, get very weak. Um, there's hair loss. A lot of people regain their weight. Um, people have become dysregulated in their relationships with things like um, alcohol and shopping and gambling. And uh, Lisa Dubril has, who's an, again, an incredible um, researcher, uh, and therapist has done a lot of work around this that um, in ways that are not common, where like it's really uncommon to see, you know, a middle-aged woman who has no history of any kind of addiction suddenly develop an addiction to gambling, but it happens after these surgeries. Um, increased suicidality is a, is a reality. Um, and then there's all the social things. There's issues within relationships. The divorce rate is incredibly high. Um, people can develop the very things they were trying to avoid, arthritis, diabetes, hypertension. Um, and then there's also the effect moving forward that your body doesn't digest things properly. So for some of the surgeries, you cannot ever again get enough nutrition with food. You must take supplements. Those supplements are expensive. And so if people lose access to them, they are going to be malnourished. And so like I was on a panel with someone who experienced homelessness after having the surgery and did not have access to those supplements, obviously. And so there, you know, are untold future effects from that period of malnourishment in their life where they simply, no matter what food they could have gotten, it wouldn't have been enough to nourish them. Wow. Um, the ER posters for like what to do when people are having um, emergency issues and they've had this surgery are complex, Oh, right? It changes your body. It can change the way that you digest medicine depending on what surgery you get. So there's oh, a I didn't lot even think of, about that. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And again, not well understood and not studied past 10 years. So there's a lot of, and I think, I think in my series about this, I list, I have a list of the side effects. Um, uh, because there's so many, too many to think of right now, but it's a lot of things that, you know, people aren't aware of. There are people who become unable to nourish themselves in extreme examples without like tube feeding, for example, there are people who have become um, unable to leave their homes. There's a lot, and I, I want to be really careful because there can be a lot of ableism here, right? That the surgery puts people in positions that other disabled people are already in. And so it's not about uh, ability or disability, and I don't want to engage in ableism as a reason not to have the surgery. I want to point out that what people are being promised and what the outcomes are are vastly disparate in a lot of cases. And your experience is what I hear from a lot of people and what I'm told, right? Oh my gosh, no, this surgery, it's a no-brainer. Yep. Right. And, you know, woe to the doctor who tells me that because now we're going to be there until they like literally leave the room. <laughs> Right? They picked the wrong girl, but it's, you know, people don't know this and you're supposed to be able to trust your doctor. This is the thing. You're supposed to be able to trust your doctor. Your doctor's supposed to be on your side, not the side of the insurance companies. And like, it just, yeah. Oh, and the weight loss industry. So another thing that, that they do is they've created these, essentially they're like AstroTurf organizations that say that they're advocacy groups for fat people, but are in fact fully funded by and act as a lobbying arm for weight loss interests in particular drugs and, and surgeries. And so like the Obesity Society, the Obesity Action Coalition, these are organizations that pretend to be advocacy groups for fat people, but their advocacy you'll notice is all getting insurance coverage for weight loss treatments that are dangerous and expensive. Again, kill the fat people. Yes. Kill the fat people, but not before we make a ton of money from that. Super, super, super gross. I have a whole workshop about fat phobia and capitalism and it's like 
strap in and like get your tinfoil hat because we're going there. Like this is what's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know you do a lot of work. And we talked about this in the last episode as well with healthcare professionals. Have you, do you go into rooms filled with weight loss surgeons? I've never spoken to just weight loss surgeons, but I've definitely gone into rooms that included weight loss surgeons and um, and people who do weight loss uh, surgery research. And I present it exactly like I did to you. What we're doing is taking a healthy system and creating disease with no long-term outcome data and with no informed consent. And that has to stop. Yeah. Um, I, I will say in like a, a little success story, I was contacted after I gave a talk by the people who managed a type 2 diabetes program and they have been moving toward using surgery as a frontline intervention. For diabetes. Yeah, for type 2 diabetes. And and they 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 fought back, they fought hard and they changed that situation. Oh, good. That's so good. And I was just writing, like, I probably wrote 20 pages of, like, research. This has happened actually a couple times in a couple different facilities where this was a, a way that they were going and they've been like, help, and I've been like, here. But so there's a huge paper about bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery for type 2 diabetes. And the paper is funded by industry interests. And then they got buy-in from organizations that you would trust, right, who should know better but don't. And this paper predicates risk on size. So it says, so there's, they divide fatness into classes, right? Class one, class two, and class three. I'm person class three. They keep changing it for a while. It was class three super obese, which I was super excited about because I was like, cape and secret decoder ring, let's go. But I think <laughs> now we're somewhere like something else. Um, but anyway, so for class one, people who don't have what they consider adequate glycemic control with, with traditional medical management, the surgery should be, they say, suggested. For class two, so these are fatter people in the same situation, the surgery should be quote unquote recommended. For class three people, they say the surgery should be recommended regardless of glycemic control. So they are 100% predicating risk on size. And these class three people could be completely healthy by all health markers other than diabetes. And also to, you said it's not predicated on their glycemic. No, it's not predicated on symptomology. Their glycemic, um, yeah, management. They're just, they're fat enough. So therefore there should be surgery. Yeah. And this is not, again, I don't believe that this is actually defensible. And I also want to point out that the study's design is what I would consider biased. So I have, again, I know a weight loss surgery researcher who feels like this is not biased and I'll explain why, but I feel it's biased. What they say that the way that they define success is remission without medication. So an A1C of 6.5 without medication. Um, so they compare surgery to traditional, to traditional medical management and they say some percentage of the surgical patients achieved remission and almost none or none of the medical management did. What that doesn't explain is that medical management uses medicine as a cornerstone. Mm -hmm. So when you define remission as without medication, you're creating a study that will say nobody getting traditional medical management had remission. But those people could have the same A1C. They just are using medication to achieve it. Right. So a another way to say that would be like, and again, Deborah Gard is somebody who said this a lot. Um, would you like to create a permanent disease state in your digestive system or would you like to take a pill every day? Oh. And the person I know who does this research for weight loss surgery said, yeah, but people really want to get off their medications because they're expensive and they don't want to take it. And I, I get that. But again, are people being given a true picture of what they're giving up to give up medications? No, I don't think so. And the expense, because often the surgery is covered by insurance, but all the follow-up is not. Oh, right. So people have the surgery and then they'll have, for example, a lot of like loose skin and it creates not just like body image discomfort, but physical discomfort. They'll get infections like it's a problem, but that won't, that's considered a cosmetic procedure. Oh, so like, for example, Kaiser Permanente had to be sued class action by people who'd have the surgery. And the only relief they got was that Kaiser said that they would consider paying for it on a case by case basis. And again, people are not typically told the surgery you need after this 
may not be covered. Right. Wow. You know, I've talked to people who've had more than 10 follow-up procedures. That's the resurgery rate for patients who have these surgeries is incredibly high, much higher than, for example, the knee surgery that maybe they got the surgery because they want it. So there's a lot of pieces. I know I I feel like I'm talking a lot and giving like a lot of- No, it's so, but it's so good. There's a lot here. Well, and it shows the complexity of this and that- And then you can just imagine the person sitting in the room with their doctor and the doctor says, "You, I strongly recommend you do this. And you just think, oh gosh, I'm scared for my life. Okay. And there's this whole. Yeah. Or they'll get, you know, for type 2 diabetes patients, they'll talk about side effects that are progressively more rare as we have better technology and better medication as if they're going to happen tomorrow if you don't get the surgery. It's like people get almost threatened or, um, you know, fear-mongered into having the surgery because the surge, the doctor thinks that it's like thin at any cost is better. Yeah, thin at any cost. And the industry is fine. So, you know, fat activists since before I was born have been saying, look, weight, intentional weight loss interventions almost never work. And now it, people feel like it's progress because it's like, oh, look, the weight loss industry is starting to acknowledge this. But what we have to understand is they're only acknowledging it to say, right, so don't do those diets, do surgeries or drugs. <laughs> so it's a massive co-option of the work of fat liberation activists to sell dangerous and expensive weight loss interventions. And they're having, they're gaining some ground. I think this is like the pivotal thing currently within medical weight stigma is that we cannot allow the idea that the real injustice is that people don't have access to pharmaceuticals and surgeries that risk their lives and quality of life to make them thin. And that's how the weight loss industry is really pitching this and putting a ton of money behind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Oh, and the weight loss drug companies work very similarly, right? Same, same playbook. Yes. Novo Nordisk. I mean, Novo Nordisk is arguably was the worst about price gouging insulin right? The way that their practices were to match their pricing to make sure they were always, you know, making the most money possible, all of that. So they've already said, we will trade human life for profit. We have no problem with that. We will become excellent at it. We will use technology to that extent. So anything they do should be under such a microscope. Yeah, but it's not. No. And what they've done is, um, so I got super obsessed with how did the, um, the, uh, opioid crisis happen? And how did the Sackler family and uh, Purdue Pharma, how did this happen? And so like super dug into it, read like at some point read or listened to like an 18 hour audio book about the family, like did a lot. And I really feel like Novo Nordisk is taking every page they can from the Purdue Pharma playbook to sell OxyContin in order to sell Wagovi, which is their new, or Wigovi, depending on where you live, which is their, what they're hoping will be their quote unquote blockbuster Right. Weight loss drug. But isn't it just a slightly different version of their old one that they were getting sued over because people were, wasn't, isn't there like a whole, there's a whole backstory there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're all um, GLP-1 uh, uh, affecting drugs. It's basically um, what they're doing is Wagovi is a really high dose of one of their um, di- type 2 diabetes drugs. Right. Which is counter to an ad I saw recently, which was like, this This is specifically for weight loss, created for weight loss. All they did, it's just a higher dose. The double dose um, in general. Uh, and so there's a lot to unpack there, right? Because in, for, for type 2 diabetes, it's a good and important drug, right? And there are people who are contraindicated for other drugs or who haven't had response to other drugs who do respond you know, to these drugs. So it's not that it's a bad drug for type 2 diabetes necessarily, but they saw that there was a weight loss component Mm. and they were like, you know what would sell a lot of, you know, of pills is a weight loss drug or a lot of um, injectables in this case is a weight loss drug, right? So this is a situation where um, they're going on 68 weeks of data. And people lost weight in, at first, and then it leveled off. And at the end of 68 weeks, there's a tiny tick upward, which is what you would expect. We also know that people, um, when they go off the drug, they do gain it back. We know that from the trials. But what they, so this has been a long game to have simply existing in a higher weight body, which is what quote unquote obesity and overweight is, right? Regardless of symptomology, simply height weight ratio, 
be seen as a chronic lifelong health condition. Ugh. And so what they're saying is, okay, since this is a chronic lifelong health condition, they're going to take these drugs for the rest of their lives, just like if it was high blood pressure, just like if it was type 2 diabetes. And so first of all, their research does not suggest that, you know, people keep losing weight. They lose like that, whatever, 40-ish pounds, and then it levels off. Um, but then after 68 weeks, does it go back up? And with all this, these drugs have significant side effects. They have a boxed warning, which is the FDA's strongest warning. Oh, um, for possible risk of tumors. And we don't know what happens when you give people type 2 diabetes medication and they don't have type 2 diabetes. And for the, their whole lives, like decades of use. And so what this drug does is when your uh, blood sugar goes up, it stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas, right? And that's, so that's its job. Um, so what happens though, is that if people are even a little bit dysregulated in terms of their insulin response, then we're giving them a mega dose of type 2 diabetes medication. So it's going to be like, bam, 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 like essentially, you know, um, I was talking to Louise Adams from Untrapped and she was like, it's not just stimulating, it's like hammering the beta cells, right? So um, they, so it hammers on the beta cells. And so what we don't know is, does that exhaust them sooner? So that people who would not have type 2 diabetes or who would develop it later in life are now going to have it sooner. What we do know is if they do develop type 2 diabetes, they are part of Novo Nordisk's market. So Novo Nordisk can turn around and market their drugs to them. And this is a company that killed people to make money on insulin. So I don't, believe for a second that they haven't taken that into account. No. Oh. This is what they do. They kill people for profit. It's it's fucking evil. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. It is on just insulin, a, a drug whose patent was sold for a dollar to to jack up hundreds and hundreds of percentages the price of that drug because you know you can profit from it. There's no a company that will do that. Mm-mm. There's no justification. And so I, I don't believe they can be trusted. I think the drug is dangerous. I think there's not nearly enough testing. And if, you know, history holds, they will not be excited to do any more long-term testing. They're going to ride this 68 weeks worth of data as far as they can. And they've promised their shareholders the fastest post-launch ever. I saw that. Of a drug. And they've promised their shareholders that they will double their quote-unquote obesity profits by 2025. So they've prom and they made no promises, by the way, about helping people with health or anything like it was all money promises. I mean, all I hear is eugenics. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. It's yeah. it's horrible. I like this is <laughs> this is when I'm like, I hate everything and I hate everybody. <laughs> it's like Yeah. How and and this is it's allowed. It's allowed. Yeah. It's endorsed, it's sponsored, it's lobbied. They put out a PSA using actors from medical drama. So literally oh. people who play doctors on TV, not medical doctors. Oh God. Saying these talking points like, you know, quote unquote, obesity is a lifelong disease and we have to destigmatize it. And destigmatizing it means giving people access to these drugs. Mm -hmm. And like, this is, you know, they've got sponsored content in Grey's Anatomy. It's... They do? I, so... I will, I will preface that by saying that they were not like, hey, this is our sponsored content, but they did this partnership and then Grey's Anatomy ran a plot line. Oh, no. Shonda Rhimes, you should know better. Well, I, I don't even know. If, like, <laughs> Shonda, I definitely do not want to be blaming, you know, a black woman for what's happening in the world. And I don't know, like, to what extent that would even be, like, within her purview or what, I don't know how that happened. Um, but what I do want to say is, like, let's not do SpawnCon with, with a company that gouged insulin prices, like, price gouged with insulin, you know. Um, so, yeah, the whole, there's a lot of, like, deeply behind the scenes stuff that happens that none of us would know about. And then all we, like what the average consumer knows is I go to the doctor and they're like, oh my God, this is a breakthrough drug. Right? I'm so excited. Look what I have for you. You're going to lose like maybe 40 pounds. And people are like, holy shit, because in diets, like nobody's losing that amount. And if they do, they gain it back. And, and they're saying, well, people maintain their weight loss. Like, <laughs> yes, for 68 weeks. <laughs> Which is not even within, like, yes, people typically gain their weight back in years two through five. Yeah. So stopping at 68 weeks was pretty convenient. Yeah. You know, as they had the first tiny uptick, like, nope, done. Same exact thing with terzepatide, you know, that 
short-term weight loss, then it levels off and then they stop looking. Oh, Reagan, I'm so depressed. (laughs) It's so good to know though. Like we have to, It's essential. It's essential to understand what's actually going on. It's essential to ask those questions. It's essential to look deeper. And I just, I hope for people listening that there's an invitation to ask more questions. And like, I think too, to question what we see. Like I'm on, you know, I've I've recently joined TikTok um, and I'll just be flipping through things and all of these companies will have ads showing up. And I just keep thinking about, you know, my 12 and 14 year old stepkids and this is what they're seeing. And it's just this cycle, the cycle that just keeps repeating. And I don't know, I don't think we can stop it, but I guess maybe then the onus, maybe, but then, oh, so this is where I struggle because then it's like, okay, well, I want systemic change, but then we, it, it keeps coming back to, well, as an individual, I guess I have to take responsibility in these ways, I don't know. I get really saddened. It's it's really hard and it's not like, this is not in your head. No. Right, like this is medical weight stigma and weight stigma in general. These things are not in people's heads and you cannot self-love your way out of systemic oppression. And that's what's tricky, right? This is really happening. People really do struggle to get access to care that wants to support them in fat bodies rather than to kill them to make them thin. This is a real thing. To me, there's some things to hold on to here. Please tell the us. The first is that there are so many more weight neutral providers than there were before. It's true. It's true. Um, and that there are ways. So I, I teach a workshop about um, dealing with weight stigma at the doctor's office and sort of the, there's a lot of different options, but the thing that seems to be the most helpful in the most cases, your mileage may vary, is to say, what would you do for thin person with this health issue? Yeah. And just stir. So then you don't have to argue about weight loss research. You just say, nope, you know what? Weight loss surgery is off the table. Let me ask you this. What would you do for a thin person with this health issue? Um, and again, it doesn't always work, but it, you know, there are ways to, to get around that. There are more weight neutral health providers. And I want to point out that when we look at individual activism, the activism that we do can change our world pretty immediately, Hmm. right? So we, for example, make up a return to sender slogan. Mine happens to be, hey, that's bullshit, but you can use whatever you like. But basically that says like you realize, oh, I've been shopping at Crap Mart and I need to make some returns, right? So I use, hey, that's bullshit. And I've been doing this for years and now it's like an, an exoskeleton. But when I see negative messages about my body, when I see a drug company ad, I go, hey, that's bullshit. Yeah. And it sounds hokey, but by doing that, you create space between yourself and the message. Yes. So it's much harder to internalize, right? And like, really, I recommend like, try being really conscious about this every single time it happens in your mind. Hey, that's bullshit or nope, 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 or not today, diet industry scum or like whatever your slogan is. Um, So, and mine is fuck diet culture. (laughs) Fuck that culture. I'm in. I love it. Um, But whatever your slogan is, and you can say it out loud, you can say it in your head, but creating that space. And that can change our world pretty immediately. And if enough of us do that, then we change the world. It's true. I love it. Right. So just know that more and more people are getting on board with this. And there's a lot of bullshit happening, a lot of co-opting happening. And all of that is problematic and all of that is to be pushed against. But know that like change is happening. Yeah. And you can be part of that change just with your individual action. I mean, you and I are having this conversation and people are listening. That's that's change too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I love it, Reagan. So let's bring it to you and talk about joy because the podcast is called Fat Joy and I always save the joy to the end. We talk about all the shitty stuff and then we're like, oh, and joy. Um, So yeah, and, and you perfectly led into it with what you were just speaking about, how you support yourself. How else do you stay connected to joy? Because you live this work. You're in front of skeptical people all day. So how do you stay connected to your joy? How do you choose it? So I have obviously a ton of privilege and luck um, that helps me keep me buoyed. I have an amazing fiance, Julian Motasek, who's an incredible activist in her own right. We have a terrible little dog who we love to pieces and dress up in costumes. And we named him after three drag queens and he acts like it. And we got what we deserved there. But, um, but he's also amazing. We were, we, uh, 
rented a pool the other night and floated him in a Tupperware container on a drink caddy in pajamas and a blanket. I live in Southern California, but it's still a little cool. So like we have pictures of that. Um, so like we have a, a statue of Fiona the hippo from uh, from the Cincinnati Zoo. It's like a statue her size and weight when she was born. And we dress it up for every season. It's in the house. Oh my so we God. We made her a habitat out of like a bookshelf and we dress it. So right now she's dressed up for the holiday season. And she has like her own tree with her own tiny presence. So like doing stuff like that, that brings me joy. Our house is full of fat positive artwork, work from the Add a Positivity Project, work from Voluptuart, um, work where like it's you, it's an assault on your eyes of fat positivity when you walk in. And so like surrounding myself with that, the incredible people and activists that I get to work with. And again, I'm not going to name them because I'm going to leave people out, but y'all know who you are and you're all amazing. So yeah, I just choose to, I think, you know, Harvey Milk said, you got to give him hope, Mm -hmm. right? And he's a hero of mine as an activist and as a queer person. And I just think I get to choose that. I get to choose whether I expect the the best or the worst. And I choose hope. I choose to see progress and I choose to believe that it's going to get better. And I choose to do whatever I can to make that a reality. I love that. Thank you, Reagan. That gives me hope too when you say that. Yay. Oh, Reagan, this has been such a joy. Thank you. You are my first two-parter. Ah, I'm so ah. excited. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm so grateful for you, for your brain, for your heart, for the work that you're doing in the world. And we're all, we all get to benefit from it. So I'm filled with gratitude. Uh, I am so grateful for the podcast and for what you're putting out in the world and that to get to be a little part of it today and in the last episode, just amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Reagan. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Another poem inspired by Reagan Chastain and our conversation about how fat, fat bodies are considered expendable and that it's okay to risk fat lives if fat bodies will become thin bodies. This is unacceptable. And in the face of that, I'm often thinking about what I can do, what we can do. Um, And this poem by Linda Hogan called The Way In came to mind as being, hmm, comfort might be too strong a word. I don't know that there is a comfort (laughs) when it comes to the eugenics stance on fat bodies. But it's something, and I need something sometimes. So here's Linda Hogan's poem, The Way In. Sometimes the way to milk and honey is through the body. Sometimes the way in is a song. But there are three ways in the world, dangerous, wounding, and beauty. To enter stone, be water. To rise through hard earth, be plant, desiring sunlight, believing in water. To enter fire, be dry. To enter life, be food. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.